This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have a special guest, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Executive Director of Immigration Policy, John Basilisi. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hi, thank you, Ian. Uh, it's great to be here. <laughs> thank you. And of course, joining us as well is our resident managing director at EIG, Justin Parsons. Thanks for coming on once again. Yeah, thank, thanks, Ian. And thanks, John, for uh, for joining. It's uh, um, We know a lot about you kind of from our, our, our clients and, and in the industry. So thanks for coming on. It's, it's It should be a good show. Um, I look forward to it. Let, let's kick this pig. Let's go. Yeah. So we'll explore key legislative and regulatory policies happening in immigration today at the Chamber of Commerce and what they're advocating for and maybe how immigration law firms can help assist. Uh, we'll address the current status, future outlook, any challenges along the way. But before we get there, John, would you like to share a little bit about your career background and now your main responsibilities as executive director of immigration policy? Happy to, Ian. And, and thank you again for inviting me to participate in today's podcast. My name is John Basilisi. I am the executive director of immigration policy at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I've been in this spot for about six years and change. Uh, prior to that, I was in Senator Rubio's office as uh, a staffer for him where I covered, among other things, immigration policy. So I was there for all the trials and tribulations associated with S744 uh, in 2013. So awful lot of experience working on these issues. Uh, the chamber is very active, both from a, a legislative standpoint and with regard to regulatory developments and other sub-regulatory administrative guidance uh, issues that you know our members have to confront. And this includes your large multinational Fortune 100 companies and your small mom and pop sole proprietorships and everything in between. So we advocate for all of them on anything that covers immigration. So whether it's guest worker programs, uh, employment-based green cards, employment verification issues, you name it, we cover it. Got it. Um, so let's begin with the last administration's immigration policies, as you were sort of mentioning. Um, as we all know, they were, they were quite comprehensive. So <laughs> how has your team responded uh, to address the Trump era policies? Are there any projects or programs currently in the works? What's the outlook in those terms? Well, Ian, there was an awful lot that happened over the past four years uh, that we had to confront. Um, there were an awful lot of policy decisions that were made in the last year in response to COVID that caused an awful lot of um, angst, worry, concern among all sorts of businesses. And I think it's important to take a look at the history of all that once the economy basically shut down mid-March last year, what happened? Um, you know, the economy was in free fall. Stock market was plummeting. Companies were very concerned about what was going to happen. And for many individuals that were hiring foreign nationals uh, at the time, there was a lot of concern about processing issues. What's going to happen with COVID shutting down all the agencies? Like, are you going to get a petition in time? Are you going to be able to uh, adequately respond to the government when there's a request for information on a particular foreign national. And 
Another key thing that uh, you know we dealt with was the issue of I-9 compliance because an I-9 is not just something for foreign nationals. Now it's designed to ensure that individuals are work authorized. That's the whole purpose of doing I-9 employment verification, but it applies to everybody. And you know, March and April last year, like there were a lot of companies that were not hiring. There were a lot of companies that were letting people go, but there were there were a few companies out there that were doing everything they could to get people onboarded. And during that first few weeks, you had the administration, which up until that time was taking what I would call, you know, the death by a thousand paper cuts approach to immigration policy, where every little thing that they did was, at least in the view of our members and in my view as well, designed to throw sand in the gears of the operations of USCIS and ICE and CBP and you know, DOL when it comes to, you know, the Office of Foreign Labor Certification, all those things were problematic. Uh, and I don't want to generalize too much because, you know, the Trump administration did do some things that we welcomed, particularly on H-2Bs. And there were some decent policy changes on H-2A that they tried to pursue as well. But when it came to high-skilled immigration, like there was just an awful lot of policies, whether it was you know, the computer programmer memo, whether it was the third party worksite memo, whether it was the dramatic spike in RFEs and denials, all those things, you know, put together was uh, very problematic for our members because it inhibited their ability to meet their workforce needs in a timely manner. But for that first few weeks during COVID, like you had the administration actually listening to us saying, listen, if you don't want the economy to completely fall apart, you're gonna to need to help us on these I-9 issues. And they did. We needed extra um, certainty to respond to uh, RFEs and NOIDs and things like that. They provided it. Was it perfect? No, but they at least did something. Um, you saw them delay the Real ID Act's implementation. We saw uh, flexibility for visa waiver program travelers that were stuck. They wanted to leave, but they couldn't leave because flights were canceled. They gave them um, oh, th that 30-day period, grace period to get out of the country. It was satisfactory departures, what it was called. There were a lot of things that were done in that moment of time that was designed to like, all right, we're trying to make sure that the business community at least has what it needs to not completely uh, you know, go haywire. And as you saw unemployment start to tick up, you saw that that posture of being, you know, much more accommodating than it had been in the past three and a half years, it completely reverted back to form where unemployment spiking and it's time to start clamping down on immigration writ large. So you saw uh, in April, you saw the immigrant visa ban, which uh, for all intents and purposes, a lot of folks, in the business community looked at that and said, it's bad, but we really dodged a bullet because they didn't go after the non-immigrant visa categories. And I remember telling <laughs> all of our members, like, be wary of this section six here because that's gonna be <laughs> that's gonna be a B in everybody's bonnet in the not too distant future. And lo and behold, what happens in June? You saw the non-immigrant visa ban take hold. And that affected H1Bs, H2Bs, L1s, and various J1s. And this had us, it had manufacturers, it had retailers, lots of people in the business community were upset. And we filed suit on it and we won. Um, it took us to the beginning of October to get that victory. And then what happens a week later when we get that 
uh, victory in court, you see the issuance of two interim final rules, one being the strength of the H-1B rule, which would have totally uh, boxed out an awful lot of current H-1B workers and current businesses that use the H-1B program, they wouldn't have been able to use it anymore because their occupations would no longer qualify, especially occupations. Thus, the workers wouldn't be eligible for the program. And if that wasn't enough, if that, if that belt wasn't enough to stop immigration, the suspenders came from DOL with the prevailing wage rule. And that jacked up the rates that individual companies would need to pay to H-1B workers uh, for their services. So to give you an example, the, the current uh, percentile at which someone needs to be paid at wage level one at DOL is the 17th percentile of all wages in that given occupation in the area where the job is located. That was moved up to the 45th percentile, which is five percentile short of current wage level three. So you think of a seasoned veteran worker that's very competent, very good at what he or she does. That's what new entry level workers would need to be paid roughly if the prevailing wage rule were to go into effect. And once again, uh, between the business community and our friends in the higher ed community, we said there's no way we can work with these rules changes. So we sued again and we won again. Um, those rules were set aside. Uh, unfortunately, toward the tail end of the Obama administration, or the Obama administration, the Trump administration, excuse me, you saw um, the Labor Department finalized the prevailing wage rule in a manner that provided more of a glide path for companies to get used to these new wage levels. They, they toned the wage levels down a little bit. You know, wage level one fell from the 45th to the 35th. Wage level four felt from uh, the 95th percentile to the 90th. Like, and wage level two and three were, you know, also modestly revised downward. It's still gonna be hugely disruptive. Um, and many companies are very concerned about that. Uh, you know, you look at what DHS did during that time, they tried to finalize the strength of the H-1B rule, uh, but between our court victory, not necessarily our court victory, but before, but when they issued the initial IFR and to the, t the end of their administration, they reprioritized what they wanted to get done. And what they finalized was this H-1B lottery rule that dealt with how cap subject H-1B petitions would be issued. And instead of dealing with them in a manner where the petitions are gonna be adjudicated in the order which they're received, which is specifically stated in the INA, what they wanna do instead is say, well, let's look at these H-1B petitions and uh, prioritize them based upon the wage tier at which someone's being paid. And then they'll go through wage level four and get rid of all that, then down to wage level three and adjudicate all those petitions. Then once you get to wage level two and one, like the idea is to box out wage level one. So there's been no entry level workers coming. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of companies that are very concerned about that because, you know, institutions of higher education graduate an awful lot of individuals, awful lot of individuals. And they may be smart. They may be very, uh, have a lot of potential and very gifted, but they have no work experience. And that means that individual needs to be paid commensurate with their education and experience. So if that's how this is going to go, you're going to have a really tough time, not just for businesses looking to meet their future workforce needs, but 
coming to the United States to get a degree here and then work once you graduate, you know, it imposes these rational disincentives to come here and then continue working here once you're done. So these are policies that we're looking to change. And I know I've been going on for a little bit. Yeah. But. And John, I'm just kind of curious to know what the chamber's position is on, you know, the new H-1B rule, if there's an official position. Senator Grassley in Durban wrote a letter, I think it was last week, urging USCIS to implement the new, the new lottery system for cap season this year. But if you could explain to us the chamber's position on uh, the new H-1B rule and, and your take on that. Well, we're very concerned about that H-1B rule. Uh, we said that in our comments last year, uh, the, as you know, the comment period for the delayed effective date notice in the Federal Register, that's something that we're going to be commenting on today. We're reiterating the same concerns we have. And while we greatly appreciate that DHS has delayed the effective date through the end of this calendar year, all it really does is prolong the inevitable. And if those changes do go into effect, you're gonna have the same problem. So our hope is that DHS takes this time to revisit this rule and say, we need to rethink our approach if we're gonna to try to prioritize the issuance of CAP subject H-1B visas based upon wage tier. So we're very concerned. Um, and we're going to be advocating for uh, changes writ large because the approach is just flawed. Yeah. Uh, what and I think this this is a good dovetailing or a good segue into uh, the Biden administration's policies because if you read the Biden administration or the Biden campaign's literature on this, they clearly they explicitly mentioned this as we want to you know, prioritize the wages for H-1B workers. If you look at their bill, they've explicitly said this in the, uh, the United States Citizenship Act, which has quite a lot of good things in it. Um, I, but this is one of those things that's very concerning to businesses because not only did the US Citizenship Act talk about this just for H-1Bs, but they also are giving DHS authority to do this for all sorts of other uh, non-immigrant visa classifications. So imagine this happening on an intercompany transferee for an L or a treaty trader investor under the E or you know, the O or the P. Those things are gonna be highly disruptive to a lot of companies that rely upon workers in those classifications. And the other thing that, I, particularly with the E, because those are the E's and the TN's, I should say, because they're treaty related, you run the risk of violating the terms of your treaty if you're adding in new uh, conditions upon the entry of foreign nationals into the US under those classifications. So these are all things that I can tell you in the conversations that I've had with uh, officials at DHS and officials at the White House, I've been abundantly clear with them saying, these are concerns. And if you go down this road, do not be surprised if the business community comes out and says, these are problems and you can't, like, we oppose these provisions. So, yeah, so I'm curious to know, um, so, you know, you've, you've kind of straddled various administrations between the Obama administration, Trump, and now Biden. I'm curious to know, um, and one of the things that we heard about the last administration is just the the the, the Trump's White House's inability or refusal to like listen to the business community. What what was your take on that? Were the lines open, and how much were they listening to the chamber 
um, if at all, or maybe maybe that's a, a misstatement that I've heard. Justin, it, it's I, I hate to give the lawyerly answer, but it all depended upon what you were discussing. Um, yeah. With regard to the Jared Kushner uh, idea to reform the issuance of immigrant visas, this was something that we had a, a very good line of communication. It wasn't always as open as you may like, but you know they sat down with us, they answered our calls, we provided feedback, they shared language with us. These were things that, you know, they listened to us all. I, I think when you wanted to look at other issues, um, like in 2018, where you had the, the Senate Queen of the Hill approach on trying to do something for Dreamers and TPS, you know, it, it wasn't as open as I would have liked, but they did meet with us. You know, they did bring us into the, the West Wing to have a meeting. Like there, there was open lines of communication. Um, I would say that so far, the Biden administration has been more open with us in terms of answering our phone calls. It's still very early. Um, but if you look at uh, what was done between March and March of last year and January of this year, the White House and DHS and DOL, like they would listen to us, they would answer our emails, but at, you know, at the end of the day, they had their agenda, they were moving forward. Um, now with regard to the Biden administration, I mean, so far, I mean, I think they have an awful lot of uh, issues to tackle. So, you know, whenever you're, as someone who opened up a Senate office and also studied for a bar exam at the same time. Like I, I understand the, like, you're very busy, like, please give me a break. Um, so it, it's, it's one of those things like they're still trying to staff up. Uh, there's a lot of open positions, particularly at DHS and at DOL that have yet to be filled. So it, you, you want to be patient and give them time to deal with all the things they want to get done early on. But a lot of things that they've done, we've welcomed, like we welcomed the, uh, the elimination of the original travel bans. We were happy that they issued an executive order on reforming legal immigration and looking at it holistically and what needs to be done. Um, you had, and even at DHS, you have uh, these announcements on OPT uh, that are, while they don't necessarily affect businesses because it's designed to deal with student visa holders, these OPT recipients are employed by chamber members. Not all of them, but there are many of them that are. And this guidance that provides flexibility. Now, is it a panacea for the processing issues that we have mentioned with DHS? Of course not. There's a lot of things that need to get done. But the fact that they're trying to do this with everything else that's going on, where you have a, a situation at the border that is gonna only get more contentious, uh, when you have various other priorities they wanna deal with, like getting out the, uh, the refugee cap number and starting to, you know, be more liberal in terms of how um, how many refugees they let into the U.S. in any given year. Uh, all those things are, they're good signs. Now, are there things that I, I would wish that they would have done by, by now? Yes. Uh, I, I would have loved to have seen Proclamation 10052 be rescinded by now. Um, and I have been adamant with anybody in the administration that's listening to me say, listen, we want this thing, you know, we wanted this revoked yesterday or last week, but the bare minimum, like on March 31st, this thing needs to go away. 
because it's still, it, from a philosophical standpoint, it's almost as if they're tacitly agreeing with what the Trump administration thought about non-immigrant workers being a, a drag on the American economy and harming American workers, which we fundamentally disagree with. Yeah. So I've represented, I've been practicing 16 years and I've represented uh, companies with, you know, five employees and then companies with 30,000 U.S. employees. And, you know, we also do global work here. So we, um, we move people to other countries like Singapore and to Ireland and the UK and Canada. I'm curious to know what your take is in terms of um, whether it, it was the last administration or this administration or even the Obama administration, whether the government truly understands that if it's not business friendly, companies are going to go to Canada or they're going to go to other countries. Because uh, that is one thing that I, 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 I don't know if, if, if it's truly you know, kind of sinking in. Um, we had a, a meeting with a client um, on the eve of the election who had a contingency plan for, you know, if Trump uh, won re-election and, you know, they were anticipating harsher, you know, immigration policies, you know, that the, they were going to consider relocating, you know, a huge percentage of their workforce abroad and kind of looking at those options. So I'm curious to know your take on what the government actually thinks will happen if in terms of the end game, do they think companies are just going to stick it out in the US or, or are they not thinking that far? Justin, it's a very good question. In terms of how I would answer this, I think it's a bipartisan issue where people seem to take our competitive advantages for granted. I, I honestly think that is the case. And the more that other countries start to open up to, uh, doing more business-friendly immigration policies. I mean, I, granted, this is, the, this is the line of work that I focus on day in and day out. But global mobility is a huge challenge for all sorts of companies. Doesn't matter what industry you're in. If you continue to do things that are going to impact the movement of not just tech talent, but I'm thinking of like, if, if they start to attack the L in a very profound way, and companies can't get their senior execs in to launch yeah. a research initiative or to expand a product line or open a new plant. That's when you're going to start seeing. And we had these conversations at, I want to say, at the end of the summer last year with a lot of firms saying, if this doesn't stop, like our long-term business plans are going to change. And they were already revisiting them, but the anti-business or the, the, the provisions or the policies that you're going to pursue, if they're the types of things that are going to hinder the free movement of people and goods and investment into the U.S., we're going to start seeing operations in all sorts of industries move offshore. Uh, you're already seeing uh, Canada. You, you see uh, there's you know, there's billboards out in Silicon Valley that says, hey, you want to immigrate? And there's a big maple leaf on it, on the billboard saying, come to Canada. You know, Toronto created an awful lot of tech jobs. I remember it was a couple of years ago, there was a factoid that was out there. It's like Toronto created more tech jobs than I think New York and Silicon Valley combined during that, like during a set period of time. Like that should be something that the warning signs should be going off that we need to compete. And, you know, it's not as if like 
immigration issues are the only thing that companies care about, but they're important. And it's, it's long past time for our elected officials in both parties to look at the immigration as a tool for, you know, our nation to be able to compete in the global marketplace. And as we're yeah. coming up to about 10 more minutes or so, uh, I know, Justin, you were mentioning about how on the business immigration side and global mobility, how can, we can better <clears throat> work with uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce or just in tandem or help assist. I, I think you were mentioning that. Yeah, so I think one of the questions we get is, you know, and I think we have clients with very kind of advanced government affairs programs who understand immigration. Um, and then we have clients who maybe they have five or 6,000 employees and um, their government affairs program isn't as advanced. So we have a lot of clients coming to us saying, well, what can we do to um, get leadership more involved in immigration? How can we, how, how can we kind of lean in more to the, um, to the issues and advocate for our clients. What, what would you recommend to um, you know, somebody in global mobility who maybe doesn't have an established government affairs team you know, um, within the company? What, what sort of things could they do um, to try to move the needle? Justin, one thing that companies should do is if they're not members of the chamber, they should join the chamber. And I, I know you said earlier, you have companies that have a handful of people working there. You have companies that have thousands of people working there. There are membership options for companies of all sizes. So if that's the case, I would highly direct your members to join the chamber. Um, the other thing that if you have, you know, I don't know if Erickson Immigration Group is a member, but you should join too. I know I'm giving you all sorts of shameless plugs right now, but it's, if you want to be part of the game, you know, taking advantage of membership options with trade associations that can give companies that don't have those connections access to them. That's the type of thing where, you know, if you're talking to whether it's someone in the White House or a staffer for someone in Congress, it's one thing for me to go in there and say, you need to do this because these types of businesses are suffering and so on and so forth. And that definitely has an influence on people. Like they get, like when the chamber comes calling and asks them for something, they listen. But when I was a Hill staffer, there was one thing that would not just move me, but move my former boss to do something. It was when a constituent of his would come in and say, this is my story. This is how this policy is affecting me in a negative way. And I need your help to change it. That type of, those types of anecdotes, they can really move a member to say, you know what, I need to start doing something on this issue because I remember so-and-so from that small town and they're hurting and they came to me looking for help and I'm here to help them. So that's something that we can definitely help with. I think the other things that uh, companies can do is to work through their law firms more closely. Um, and, and, you know, they already are looking to you for guidance, but uh, you know, a, a lot of law firms are members of the chamber and we work very closely with all of our members, whether the law firms, companies, trade associations, you have it. Um, those, are th those are the two things I would recommend companies do. Great, great. Um, 
John, Justin, thank you so much for uh, coming on and just sharing your insight and giving us an inside look. Please feel free to come on again when there's a, another policy that, that comes out, something that's hard and hidden that we, we need to get out and how we can best help. We will love to have you back on. Ian, I, you, you just let me know when and where and, and we'll, <laughs> we'll make the time. Uh, it, it's a rarity that I'm able to work with a, a fellow football player um, yeah, it, professionally. <laughs> the funny thing is, like, I, I remember when you sent me the first invite and I looked at this, it says immigration nerds. Like, I've never been referred to as a nerd. <laughs> Being a you got to embrace it. <laughs> or, 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 or a lot mm -hmm. worse. Um, so I was like, you know what? This is refreshing. I, I'm just going to sit here and, and just bask in the ambience. Like, finally, uh, someone thinks I'm really brilliant. This is nice. <laughs> yes, yes. We, we, we like to embrace that term here. You know, that means you're knowledgeable. <laughs> yeah, well, John, I can say that, um, you know, as I said before, Hugh just had really great things to say about you. And uh, I think the kind of the, the complexity in, uh, that you've been able to, to kind of talk about all these issues is just, it's great. Um, you know, we work with, we've talked to folks at other organizations and agencies and, and uh, yeah, your knowledge has been, has been great. So thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Justin. And thank you, Ian. And uh, if there's anything else that I can do for y'all in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you to lead researcher Con Branch, assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week. <laughs>